That uh, musical rendition was quite apropos. Uh, tests, trials, and all of us experiencing the big one for everyone has been uh, the pandemic. Um, the virus is still there, but that has tested us for more than a year. It's been a trial, and then you add the personal uh, trials that uh, people experience uh, during this period. And for Christians, the, the consoling fact is that the Lord is with us in them. We're not alone. Uh, he is our Lord who meets our need. He guides us. He blesses us. And we're thankful uh, for that reality. And to be reminded of it in song is an encouragement uh, to us for other trials will come until we leave here and we enter into his presence. So we're here today again at this point to minister the word of God to you. Uh, Luke chapter 20, uh, verse 27 is where we begin. If you're a Bible reader, you're very familiar with this portion of Holy Scripture. And um, we want to look at it again in May, uh, and we're trusting the Lord to open our eyes and give us additional understanding. Let me read these verses for you. Verse 27 of Luke 20. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second, and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. We uh, will entitle this message this morning, Resurrection Life. The title of the message, in fact, defines the nature of our life in the age to come. Our mode of living will be different from life as we presently know it. We gain insight into that life, into that post-resurrection existence, courtesy of an encounter between our Lord Jesus Christ and one of his group of opponents, the Sadducees. It was, a, as you can see, a Q&A kind of format. Now, many times, Q&As feature questioners who are sincere in seeking after truth. They really want to know an answer to their query. Not so here. The question that was put to Jesus by the Sadducees was really designed to stump him. It was designed, in fact, to discredit him and diminish him as a teacher. But you need to understand the Sadducees, um, they were not the first who employed this ploy. In the previous verses, there are some who approached Jesus with questions about 
paying taxes. And as you know the story, Jesus utterly demolished them by explaining to them how they're to give to God what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar to Caesar. The Sadducees, they knew about this, but they were up next. Um, they were, if you will, allow me to put it this way, they were on the pitcher's mound. And they intended by their question to throw a fastball to Jesus, and they thought he would be unable to hit it. Uh, the question that they bring to our Lord is based on their utter disbelief in the resurrection, which they say there is no resurrection. Who are these people, the Sadducees, that are mentioned here in verse 27? They were a religious sect in Israel, comprised of high priestly families. They oppressed the common people and used their positions of power and influence to indulge themselves at the expense of their fellow Jews. Religion, then, was a means of their personal enrichment. <laughs> we might say they live their best life now. <laughs> Because according to them, there was no tomorrow. If there's no resurrection, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Did not Paul say that? That's how the little saying went uh, in Corinth. Jewish historian of the first century, you know about him, the first century A.D., Josephus, wrote in his Antiquities that the Sadducees believed that the soul perishes along with the body. So they believed in total extinction. No existence uh, after death. I had a co-worker like that. Years ago, he uh, was not a Sadducee. In fact, he was irreligious. But he believed that once you die, they put your body in the ground. That was it. Well, uh, that is not r the truth of the matter. But that's what they believed. And that's what that co-worker of mine believed. And it's interesting, too, as I've already mentioned, their lifestyle um, is the logical and inevitable outcome of their belief system. If you believe there is no tomorrow, then you ought to live for all you can get out of this life. You remember the commercial, you say, grab, you only go around once, grab all the gusto while you can. That always bugged me because I said, that's a lie. You don't go around once. There is life after death, and to waste your life trying to grab all the pleasure uh, is a foolish thing. But they denied the resurrection. In fact, uh, their denial of the resurrection was a source of theological controversy between them, them and the Pharisees. Pharisees, as you know, they affirmed the resurrection of the dead. They were the supernaturalists as opposed to the Sadducees who were anti-supernatural. The Sadducees, in fact, held to the primacy of the Mosaic Law. Uh, we call it also the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, those books were primary. In fact, um, all the rest of the Old Testament was simply a commentary on uh, those first five books in the view of the Sadducees. They taught that, now get this, nowhere in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament, um, is the resurrection taught. In fact, they even went so far as to say wherever it's taught, the resurrection, in the rest of the uh, Old Testament, you must interpret it in a different manner. It's amazing what people will do to go to, to affirm what they 
deny. And so they uh, did not believe in the resurrection. Keep that in mind. The first five books, they, it does, they do not teach the resurrection. So in their minds, the doctrine of the resurrection, verse 28, created a dilemma. And that's our point here. We've seen their denial. We look at their dilemma. Um, their question of Jesus was to then to spotlight this dilemma that this doctrine, which they denied, uh, posed for anyone holding to it. They saw it as an absurdity. In fact, this whole uh, rendition, uh, this whole story that they uh, uh, tell here is uh, to illustrate the absurdity of the doctrine of the resurrection from their perspective. So they make their case, and they make their case here in verse 28. When they question him, they talk about teacher. They call him that. That was Jesus' official title, uh, teacher. So he was teacher. They make their case, interestingly, from the Torah, from the Pentateuch. When they say Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning at verse 5, extends through verse 7, I believe. This text is from the Mosaic Law. Uh, scholars call this the Leverate marriage from the Latin levere, meaning husband's brother. What this uh, law provided was that the brother of the dead man who died childless could marry his brother's widow and produce an heir. The brother would, of course, he'd be unmarried. He'd marry her for the, the idea of keeping the property in the family. Now, we don't know if this case that they present here with the woman who marries seven brothers and they all die and there are no children, whether that's hypothetical or an actual case, we don't know. If somebody asked me to put some money on it, I wouldn't because I don't gamble, but if I were going to wager, just hypothetically speaking, I would say it's probably something they concocted, but I don't know. Nobody knows. But in any case, it's a dilemma. It's a dilemma that's presented here regarding the doctrine of resurrection. And so they thought this really, this argument that they were going to present to Jesus was the clincher to show the utter absurdity of any belief in the doctrine of resurrection. Now, notice what they say here. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and, of course, died childless. Um, no heir, no one to uh, inherit the property. And the other brothers were dutiful. The second brother said, well, uh, our, our, my, our brother has died. There, he has no heir to perpetuate his name, to inherit the property, to keep it in the family. I'll marry her. And then in verse 31, the second did the same thing. Now, I'm just going to say this. If I'd been one of the seven, and three of my brothers married this woman and died. I said, uh, <laughs> I love the Lord because he, he heard my cry, but I, I think I'm going to beg out on this one. <laughs> I said, something's deadly here. <laughs> I think I want to, I'm going to go out of town. I've been called to foreign missions or something I would say. 
Well, it continues, as you know, the story, and, and saying, well, all seven died, leaving no children. Now, that's a possibility that that could actually happen. Finally, verse 32, the woman died also. So what this means is the family tree is exhausted. There are no heirs. But that's not really the concern of the Sadducees. They're not interested in a brother perpetuating his name in Israel, being a part of the covenant people, or inheriting property. That, that's no interest of theirs whatsoever. Their whole point is to show uh, that this idea, this resurrection of the dead that's held by the Pharisees and presumably by Jesus, uh, can't be anything but an absurdity. Now, let's look here in verse 33. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven have married her. Let's kind of analyze what they're saying here. First of all, the Sadducees' question presupposes that life in the resurrection will be like life now. That's what they had in their mind. Nothing has really changed. The structure of life as it is now will continue on in the resurrection. Then, given that this wife had seven husbands in this life, with that idea in mind, life continues on in the next, according to them. How can she possibly have only one in the afterlife? I mean, she's got to have one of them. She can't be married to all of them, after all. Pentateuch does teach monogamy, one man, one woman. And certainly if things are going to continue on in the next life like they are now, she can't have all seven men as husband at the same time. The absurdity of the woman's dilemma is designed then to show the futility of the hope of resurrection. You see. And I, you, you wonder, too, uh, if, she, if that's the case, if she's, whose wife will she be? We don't know if she would have to choose. They don't say that. It makes you wonder. If, how, how would she determine that? Any, meeny, miny, mo? Catch a husband by the toe? I, I don't know. That would be hard. But the, the final thing we want to say here is that from this question, they think that they have Jesus caught. And that, that's their point. I told you earlier in this little message that their design is to trap him, to ensnare him in his words, to diminish him as a teacher. Throw him a fastball, which probably is a curveball as well, and he's off caught and he cannot answer it. Because they believe that there is no adequate answer to the question. So he's caught. So we have this dilemma. Dilemma. Well, th they only thought they had him caught. Jesus then gives us this point, this third one, uh, the disclosure. The disclosure. Jesus said to them, sons of this age marrying are given in marriage. But before he does that, we need to understand in his authoritative reply to the Sadducees, we need to first uh, note the parallel count in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, 
where our Lord says to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus rebuked them. He rebuked them for their error, and their error was twofold, their ignorance of scripture and of the power of God. The first error is this, the scriptures do teach the resurrection. The second error is comprised of this, they fail to realize that God is capable of raising the dead to an existence quite unlike the present one. The power of God is not limited to replicating what we know and what's known to us in this life. That's ridiculous. So their ignorance, Jesus says, is double. They don't really know what they're talking about. Then he says in verse 34 here in, in Luke 20, um, your presupposition is wrong. He debunks it, Jesus does. That life in the resurrection is like life now. It is not. The sons of this age, notice this age, marry and are given in marriage. Verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain, attain to that age and the resurrection neither marry nor are given in marriage. You see the difference, the contrast. Men marry and, and women are given in marriage in this age. See, marriage and family is for this life. Those relationships are for now. That's pre-resurrection life. That's this age. But this age, the one we're living in now, this present world, where the world is structured now in terms of families and marriage and all of that that's related to it, is contrasted, notice in verse 35, with those two words, that age, the future one. That age is associated with the resurrection from the dead. Now, we need to say something about that age. Just mentioned here in verse 35. In that age, some will be excluded. Only some attain to it and the resurrection of the dead. Important thing to grasp. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. Now, we need to say here, because Jesus has taught it and it's true, of course, the Scripture affirms that all men will be resurrected from the dead. All men. Every single human being will experience resurrection. But not all men will be worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection of the dead. You say, well, wait a minute, that sounds like double talk. What are you saying? Here's what I'm saying is, yes, all men will be resurrected, but all men will not experience the same kind of resurrection. Jesus taught in John chapter 5, verse 29, there's a resurrection unto condemnation and there's a resurrection unto life. All men will be resurrected, but there are two distinct categories. There's a category of condemnation raised for that, and there's a category raised for life or eternal life. Well, the further question we have to ask, and we wonder then, who are the worthy? Who are the worthy? The ones who will attain to that age, the future, and the resurrection from the dead. 
Who are the worthy who will be in the eternal state, in the new heavens and the new earth? That text I read earlier in 2 Peter 3, who's going to be there? Who is worthy? It's a good question. Isaiah 64, 6, somebody said, well, the righteous, not according to Isaiah. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, not even one. Well, maybe those who have done good. Romans 3.12 says, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Interestingly enough, the verb uh, there in verse 12 is in the present tense. There is no one who habitually does good. No one does that. But that's what God requires. He requires perfection. Moreover, we have to understand the goodness and the righteousness that we're talking about here. I've said it before, it's it's worth mentioning again in the context of who is worthy. Um, Scripture never hands down relative goodness as a means whereby someone can earn divine favor. In fact, the goodness, goodness and righteousness, um, the standard is God himself, who is perfectly righteous, who is perfectly good. There is none good but God, Jesus teaches. Only the triune God is good. No human being is good. By the way, let me just go off on this for a moment. People say, that mankind is basically good. You've heard that right? That's a big lie. That's a big lie. Mankind is not basically good. That contradicts scripture. Mankind is basically evil. Man is depraved. Man is sinful. Man transgresses God's law. Man is not good. Live a little while. Pay attention to the news. You say, well, they do some good stuff. (laughs) I'm glad you said that. You advance our conversation. Let's talk about it. R.C. Sproul, he steps up and he says this, a good deed is measured in two ways. First, conformity to the law of God. For example, do not steal. Do not lie. Now, let me depart from Sproul just to have my own commentary. Uh, how many people you know who do that? <laughs> that never has stolen a lie, never has stolen something, never has violated divine law. Who has, was in perfect conformity to it all the days of their born, all their born days? Sproul continues. Second, not only is external conformity required, but also motivation. For God reads the heart. For a work or deed to be considered good, it must be motivated by sincere love for God. Every deed, then, must proceed from a heart totally, that totally loves God. Now, I, I, uh, in, the, in the quotation, no fallen human being totally loves God. None. 
There's only been one who did, and he's at the right hand of the Father right now. No human, fallen human being could, could totally love God all the time without fail. That's impossible. It's a standard that we cannot meet. Well, all that said then, who, who, who are the worthy ones? Certainly not those who had good deeds because they can't meet the standard. Certainly not those who are righteous because they can't meet the standard. Well, then what makes a person worthy? How does a person become worthy to attain unto that age and the resurrection from the dead? Here's the answer. The ones who have been made worthy by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. When we are gathered around the throne, when we're in his presence and we're in eternity, the eternal state perfected, it is not because we have any inherent worthiness, it's because he made us worthy. And we and we alone will attain to that age in the resurrection of the dead. We'll experience a resurrection of life, eternal life. We'll be in the eternal state. In the eternal state, uh, the fullest expression of eternal life will be experienced by us. We'll be perfect in body and soul, united in the resurrection, those two parts of our humanity. And we'll experience it to the full. But in that age, you notice Jesus says in the bottom of verse 35, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Marriage and family life will not exist in the age to come. People won't be getting married. Jesus goes on to explain, verse 36, that word for, he provides the explanation for it, for they cannot even die anymore. Marriage and family is for the perpetuation of the human race, because all people of this age do what? Die. Family life for Christians, particularly, let me express this, uh, includes the transmission of divine truth to children. It won't be necessary then. In that age, people die. We'll be like the angels. And the Greek says um, equal to angels, angel-like. Notice, like the angels, Jesus is not teaching that we will become angels. People do not die and go to heaven and sprout wings. We'll be like angels. We're compared to angels, and the comparison is this. Angels do not die, and neither will we. Angels do not produce. There are no baby angels. I think you, you've seen those little statues, little, little angels, baby angels, little cherubic faces, and they look so sweet. Baby, I said, that's just utter nonsense. There are no little baby angels in heaven. God created all the angels at one time. He spoke and boom, they came into existence, all of them, including Lucifer. Their number is permanently fixed. 
And by the way, Jesus, by saying that, like the angels, he, he refutes the Sadducees on another point that they held. Not only did they deny the resurrection, uh, they denied the, the existence of angels and spirits. Acts chapter 23, Paul exploited that. He was brought before a group of people, and the Pharisees and Sadducees were there. And so what he did, they were both against him. What did Paul do? He talked about uh, the resurrection and angels and spirits. Boy, Paul used that, exploited that to his advantage. These guys denied that. Jesus said they exist. In addition to being like the angels, we're also defined by two other titles, sons of God being sons of the resurrection. The phrase sons of is a defining quality, essential nature. Sons of God, which we became at salvation. God is our Father for all eternity, our divine parent, God the Father. Sons of resurrection, the life of God, eternal life be ours. He's our Father, we're his sons, we have his life. So Jesus is, so far in his disclosure, is debunked. The Sadducees is foolish presentation, but he's not done. You notice verse 37, but that the dead are raised. But that the dead are raised, underscore that. And where does he go to demonstrate that? Even Moses showed. In the passage about the burning bush, that is in Exodus. In the passage about the burning bush, of course, uh, chapter and versification came long after the time of Jesus. So they would refer to a passage by some distinguishing characteristics, such as the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was there. And he says, the Lord says, he's the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Again, notice where Jesus goes. He goes on their turf, their playing field. To answer the question. The very part of the Old Testament that the Sadducees held in primacy, the first five books of Moses, he says, notice, but that the dead are raised. In fact, he is saying to the Sadducees, you guys need to understand the place where you say that it is not taught, yes, it is. Jesus contradicts them. He teaches that resurrection occurs even in that text by Moses. Now, how interesting is that? This passage shows that they did not understand the scripture, as Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 22, 29. Remember that? And in Matthew chap Mark chapter 12, I want you to notice something here about this a parallel passage. In Mark 12, 26, God himself said to the speaker, when he's speaking to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In the Mark passage, 
says, I am the God of Abraham, and goes on, as I just say, stated. Notice that Mark writes that God says, I am. Present tense, not I was. These men had long since died when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. They were physically dead, but they had not ceased to exist. They still existed. They were alive in Yahweh's presence. Death does not end a person's existence. When you die, they may put your body in the ground or they may uh, burn your ashes, whatever, the, uh, burn your body and turn to ashes, whatever they do with your remains, as they're called, that is not the cessation of your personal existence. Jesus saying that these men, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that God is their God. They were alive in his presence, verse 38, and in personal communion with him and worshiping him. The Pentateuch, therefore, does teach the resurrection. These men are alive, and they will be raised from the dead. So as the Old Testament talks about the resurrection of the dead, and the implication of it is that they will be here, uh, it's true, and Jesus goes right back to that text, a place where they would deny it. The dead are raised. That's what Jesus says in verse 37, but that the dead are raised, and he uses that passage to prove it. Now, you do know in Jesus' disclosure, there are people standing around listening. Remember, the Sadducees, their whole goal was to discredit Jesus. It was to uh, show that he is, he can't answer this question. He is not to be listened to, diminish his stature. They were trying to defeat him. We know who won. And those standing around got it. Notice verse 39. Some of the scribes <laughs> answer said, Teacher, you have spoken well. They recognize, wow. You, Master Teacher, you have devastated the Sadducees. You expose their ignorance of the Pentateuch rather than them showing that Jesus was not the kind of teacher that they should listen to. Jesus shows, I am the master teacher. He showed that it does teach the resurrection. The scribes congratulated him. That's why they say what they did. Now, in verse 40. For they had, did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Hmm. No longer were their profiles in courage. <laughs> they lost all courage. Jesus silenced them. Instead of them catching him, he caught them. Christ's wisdom was on display. And another thing, it affirmed the promise of resurrection for all who put their faith in him. And that's what 
is helpful and good for us. He has affirmed the resurrection will occur. You will be raised. You're going to die. You leave, you leave your body. You're going to go and be in the presence of the Lord, and you're going to be there, but you're going to be resurrected. You're going to have your body reunited with your spirit, and you'll go into eternity that way, the eternal state. That's the promise. And then we'll have resurrection life. Jesus, because it was only germane uh, to uh, the topic that was raised by them and the question that is the Sadducees, he didn't elaborate all that could be said about uh, the life uh, in the eternal state, resurrection life. But what we have here is enough to help us to give glory and praise to his name. Amen? That's where we're headed. Resurrection life. And I'm sure you're like me. You look forward to the day when we're there with him in resurrection life for all eternity. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Father and our God, for the, the record here of our Lord Jesus' words. We thank you for um, the truths that are communicated here, which are helpful for our life now. It helps us to understand the life to come. Um, may we live... Uh, here in the present age, in a way that glorifies your name and point men to the age to come. Those that are lost, that they may understand that they can participate if they trust in Christ the Lord as their Savior from sin. We pray you say those who were here and want to be a part of that, open their hearts and bring them to yourself. And for those of us who know you now, may we rejoice in what you have planned for us in the future. May we hold fast to your truths. May they encourage us, fortify us in these days and the days to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are glad you're here with us. Uh, we're going to be back, God willing, next Sunday. And we look forward to you joining us at the 11 o'clock hour as we share the word of God and as we worship him together. S see you then. <laughs>